you know, from the economical standpoint that like China has the potential to become number one in the world, you know, number one biggest economy in terms of the GDP. It's not there yet, but, you know, people say it's gonna it's gonna happen soon. And, and of course, all the fundamentals kind of, you know, make sense that, uh, you know, China has the scale, you know, so even though they don't have the per capita, uh, you know, uh, GDP as high as the United States or European countries, but because of the scale, because of 1.4 billion people, this is probably going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And so, uh, you know, I was just thinking that this is the best time to see it from the inside out. What's going on? You know, like, like, is China going to be the rival? Is China going to be the good force, the bad force, whatever it is? I just thought, like, you know, I want to see it from the inside and I want to understand it because nobody really tells the right story in the media. You know, nobody really goes into the details. Everybody focuses on the headlines, but nobody goes into the details of the innovation, of the culture. You know, like what are what is behind those decisions that are being made? And I felt like I want to understand it from the inside out before I can, you know, make some uh, conclusions. Hi, and welcome to Tech Talk. My name is Stefan, and on this podcast, I have conversations with founders, innovators, and entrepreneurs in technology, simply to learn and discover their journey of building a business in tech. For those of you who know me better, you know that I'm part of the Startup Grind community and have been leading the community events in Cluj-Napoca for the past six years. On this note, I'm happy to say that through Startup Grind, I've met this episode's guest, Jan Schmeichel, or better known as your China guy, and you will understand why as soon as you will listen to the episode. Jan Schmeichel resides in Shenzhen and is the founder of YCG. YCG is a boutique cross-border business expansion firm that facilitates cross-border independence in order to help companies realize value in China. Jan is also a venture partner at Black Panther Capital, which is a new generation of multifamily office, and also entrepreneur in residence at Stacks Accelerator, which, by the way, it's investing in DeFi, FinTech, NFTs, and Web 3.0 startups. Enjoy all the wisdom that Jan is dropping on this episode. I hope you like it. Welcome, Jan, to the Tech Talk podcast. It's been a while, and I'm happy to have you here. Man, super excited to catch up with you, man. Yes, it has been a too long time, actually, since we see each other, since we have seen each other in person, you know? Crazy. Yeah. COVID times, crazy times. Yeah. Last time, I think we saw um, each other, it was actually in San Francisco, right? Yeah, I think so. It was at the Startup Grand Conference, you know? And it's it's my, maybe three, four years now. Now, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, something like that. But um, I'm happy that Startup Grind brought us together. <laughs> yes, me too, man. I, I love it, man. I still wear the t-shirts, even though they're quite old already. I don't receive the new ones, unfortunately. You know, Nobody yeah. ships me the new new batches from San Francisco. I, hopefully they will do at some point. But I still rock the, rock the swag and, and I, love the, I love the community. You know? So uh, yeah. super grateful for all the connections. Me too, me too. And I'm also looking forward to the uh, next year's global. I'm thinking about going. I don't know yet, but I'm thinking about it. Yeah, man, you should go. I mean, for me, it's very difficult because coming in and out, in and out of China, it's very difficult. 
mm-hmm. know, you gotta you gotta do quarantine coming coming out and coming back, and it's basically just like one month plus commitment uh, to spend in hotels. So I'm still not sure if it's actually a practical decision, but you know, hopefully we can meet in person very soon again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, cool, Jan. I'm gonna kick off this with a really funny and simple thing. Um, the hashtag your China guy. Tell me the story behind it. Um, I know part of it, but where did this entire story with the hashtag your China guy start? And um, as a matter of fact, with China itself. Yeah, man. So it's a very good question. I mean, the story starts or started maybe already seven, eight years ago when I was still in Czech Republic, and you know, I was uh, I was working for different startups and I was learning a lot. I was finishing my university and then I started my first company at the same time because I was always more entrepreneurial, kind of pursuing different path than my classmates uh, that were kind of going after the McKinsey, BCG, jo- uh, BCG jobs. And uh, I was kind of always thinking differently. I was like, maybe I want to do something something on my own, you know, more exciting. And And since I kind of you know, got in touch with the startup community pretty early on in Czech Republic. So, uh, you know, it led me to start my first company that was about importing stuff from China to Czech Republic and uh, doing basically an e-commerce business. You know, back then, you know, we didn't really call it e-commerce business. You know, we're just doing a side hustle as two students, mm-hmm. importing a couple products, selling them first on eBay and then actually starting our own website and, and building up the business. And so uh, that's actually where the story with China starts. You know, and uh, that brought me to China, brought me here because uh, we made some money and I got excited because suddenly, you know, I was a young guy and like we were making money, not too much. We're not millionaires, but like we're making enough money to, you know, uh, to survive and to grow the business. And I was like, hey, I should learn something about the country where I make the money from, let's say, because we're importing Chinese products, Chinese brands, actually. We're not even importing other brands, but Chinese brands specifically selling them in Europe. And so uh, I came here, here, Shenzhen, China, and uh, I was just blown away because nobody really, you know, taught us anything about China back then. Everybody was just talking about China as a factory of the world and child labor and all these like bad things in the media that, you know, you can just think of. And uh, it's still there, but like, you know, to some extent, the world is more more educated about what's going on in China in terms of, you know, the the technology in terms of uh, the innovation, digitalization, and in many aspects, China is basically leading the way. And yeah. so I was, I was blown away by that. And I, I kind of uh, made a decision after spending six months at a university and an exchange program here that I want to stay here long term because I felt like this is the best time to be here. You know, people were starting, starting to pay attention to China. At the same time, there is this political situation that people even feel threatened in a sense by Chinese companies or China. And, uh, you know, now I mean, you know, from the economical standpoint that like China has the potential to become number one in the world, you know, number one biggest economy in terms of the GDP. It's not there yet, but, you know, people say it's going to it's gonna happen soon. And, and of course, all the fundamentals mm-hmm. kind of, you know, make sense that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, China has the scale, you know, so even though they don't have the per capita, uh, you know, uh, GDP as high as the, United States or European countries, but because of the scale, because of 1.4 billion people, this is probably going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And so, uh, you know, I was just thinking that this is the best time to see it from the inside out. What's going on? You know, like, like, is China going to be the rival? Is China going to be the good force, the bad force, whatever it is? 
I just thought like, you know, I want to see it from the inside and I want to understand it because nobody really tells the right story in the media. You know, nobody really goes into the details. Everybody focuses on the headlines, but nobody goes into the details of the innovation of the culture, you know, like what are, what is behind those decisions that are being made. And I felt like I want to understand it from the inside out before I can, you know, make some uh, conclusions. Right. Uh, so that was the motivation. And that's where the Your China Guy story started, because, you know, at the time I was the guy in Shenzhen, there was not too many foreigners talking about innovation, digitalization, cross-border stuff with Shenzhen, you know, innovation overall. And, uh, you know, I was posting a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, right? I was just like, hey, this is what I see in Shenzhen. This is what is happening here. Like they have all the taxis are electric now, you know, and, and this is another innovation brought by Tencent and Alibaba and other companies, right? So I was posting a lot about this ecosystem here. And uh, people started started calling me like, hey, you're the guy in China. You're my guy in China. If I want something <laughs> in China, I should probably go to you because I was really, you know, excited about, you know, kind of educating people about what I'm seeing day to day on the streets, you know. And so I actually didn't pick it up. You know, there was other people started calling me that. And I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. Like nobody can really pronounce my name anyways. You know, who is going to pronounce Jan Schmeichel? You know, like nobody knows how to pronounce that. Nobody will remember that. But everybody will remember your China guy. It's exactly. easy. Everybody it will remember. And, you know, I back, back then, actually, another part of the story is very relevant here is that I am a big fan of Gary Vee. And he was always talking mm. about brand, you know, and like how you should be memorable, you know, and like doing all these things and create content and provide value to people. And, you know, he was basically the inspiration for me to, to take this, you know, hashtag and to take your China guy and put it on my Instagram, on my LinkedIn, everywhere, and basically kind of build my brand around it, you know. And so it has been, it has been fairly beneficial. Uh, I don't even pro produce so much content anymore, unfortunately, even though uh, I want to get back to it as we discussed. But uh, still, you know, the brand itself and, and the connectivity that it brought to me is, is really amazing. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, um, I remember you doing, you know, content while we were at the startup grind global conference, and uh, yes. I kind of, um, I was, let's say, if if it's, you know, to say, I was part um, of your, let's say, start with the your China guy hashtag itself with the branding in itself. So that was really nice seeing you create content. So that was great. That's amazing story, and. Um, you know, I've known only part of it. Uh, I don't know all of it, of course, and there's definitely a lot of details about it. So it was this entrepreneurial gig that you had with your student friends and colleagues. And was that happening? Like, what was that? Was that while you were doing that business, you traveled to China and um, had that experience in terms of um, exchange? Or what was that? No, actually, you know, it's, uh, it's basically, you know, like uh, back then, I would say it wasn't uh, so easy to get into China, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, first of all, it wasn't so popular. Many people wouldn't just go, yes, maybe for travel to go see the Great Wall, but for, for actually coming here to study or to be for an extensive period of time, at least six months to one year, it wasn't so easy because, uh, you know, not many people have done it, especially in my circle, right? So basically I had to uh, kind of, you know, take the, first, uh, you know, first principle approach, like kind of build it up from scratch. So, you know, what I did uh, back then, you know, how I actually got into China was that, 
you know, we started this company without going to China. We actually mm-hmm. found some suppliers online on Alibaba back then. Nobody trusted Alibaba when we started this company, you know, in 2013. Nobody really trusted the company that it can be a global platform and that you can buy products that are real. Everybody thought it's going to be fake, right? So yeah. we kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, we kind of used the, the, you know, this kind of arbitrage and we did it anyways. And uh, then we... Uh, uh, you know, we, yeah, we basically uh, found some suppliers. We started the company anyways, and I only moved to China after the company was established and was actually profitable, making Got money. And uh, I had to set up the, you know, the kind of relationship between my university back then and the university in China kind of helped them to sign a partnership so that they could onboard me as an exchange student. Because back then I could only go to China as an exchange student if they had a contract, long-term contract together, they wouldn't mm-hmm. just like randomly take a guy from some university they have never heard of, or, you know, they don't know in Czech Republic. So I kind of initiated the contract signing with the Peking University and Charles University in Prague and everything worked out well. I mean, I'm, you know, pretty, pretty happy for that, that like everything fall into place, fell into place. And uh, now I'm here, you know, so that was the, that was the beginning of the journey in China. So you were doing business development quite early, even with your student exchange. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> man, hus- you know, that's- a hustler never never stops hustling, right? No, I man, I love it. I mean, I mean, it's great that you're mentioning it. It's true, man. When I look back, I, of course, back then I didn't really think about it that way, right? I was just doing it because I wanted to come here and yeah. I wanted to get stuff done. But yes, when you look back and analyze the situation, you kind of uh, get a sense of like, yeah, this has always been in me, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, really, first of all, building communities and talking to people and organizing events at the university and like making things happen, connecting people. But at the same time, you know, like when you want to get something and there is no solution, like you're going to come up with that solution, yeah. right? And, uh, you know, of course, it's not a rocket science to connect you people and sign a contract. It's not like building up SpaceX or Tesla from zero, right? It's not that kind of endeavor. But Still, like, you know, it's it's really something that has been in me since then. And, uh, you know, it worked out. And because of uh, because of that, I'm here, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's um, building bridges that it is. I mean, you're building bridges between yes. two worlds, uh, two people. It's always building building bridges within this business development and networking and community building. But exactly. I want to fast forward. Um, so the story is amazing. Like I said, I know only part of it. And you definitely added some parts now to it. Um, and I want to fast forward that to today and which where you say you facilitate the next generation cross-border success, right? What do you actually do and what makes it different to the old generation, if I could frame it like that? Yeah, I think I think probably, you know, saying old generation probably maybe not the right word. But, you know, basically, you know, I think I look at it from the perspective that, you know, everything is changing, Right. Like Mm -hmm. China was different 20 years ago. And yes, there was a lot of people that came here and built a lot of bridges and built a lot of business. And it was done differently than it's done today because the market has become, you know, more competitive. There is also, uh, you know, all of these political pressures and, you know, this branding issues, you know, around China sometimes that, you know, prohibit some people from from actually connecting with people here, connecting with the culture here, right? So, So there is many things that, are new today that maybe didn't exist uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, right? So so that's why, you know, I look at it from the next generation because everything is evolving. There is new innovations. 
China is stronger in supply chain than ever, you know, new innovations coming into the supply chain. So, uh, you know, you have to look at the things more from the from the broader perspective, more comprehensive perspective, you know. And uh, it's not that easy anymore as like maybe you go to a conference and you find an English speaking Chinese person mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that person becomes your partner, right? That maybe was possible before because there wasn't so many English speaking Chinese people. And, you know, like you could maybe build up something based on that. But today you cannot, you know, you, you know, you really have to go much deeper. You have to understand the culture better. You know, I learned the Chinese because of this, because at the beginning, when I got to China, I didn't speak my Chinese. Of course, obviously, I never had a plan to go to China before. But, you know, I spent three years here studying here and there, not understanding much. But then I realized that, like, if I don't really speed up my learning process and I don't understand Chinese and I cannot go into meetings and talk to people in Chinese, I am missing 85, maybe 90 percent of all the context and of everything. You know, and so this is kind of what I call the next generation, because you really have to localize yourself as much as you can. You have to you have to, you know, build much deeper relationships. And, uh, you know, like it's it's a long term game, you know, like as as everything. Right. Because, yeah, there is a lot of things that, you know, uh, can cause problems. There is still a lot of people that may want to cheat on you for sure in the manufacturing industry everywhere. Like you may find a lot of people that just want to make a buck out of you. But if you have that comprehensive approach, the next generation approach that you want to understand the culture, you want to meet a lot of people, you want to build your network locally, not just in your specific area, but you want to go broad, then, you know, those are the things that can save you eventually. And that can open up new opportunities, you know, that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. And so this is kind of like what I what I consider next generation. And, you know, what we do in an essence, yes, we we basically help to build a bridge. Right. I mean, I mean, you know, maybe that's a cliche. Many people use this kind of sentence, but, you know, that's what it is. Right. We we work with companies that are from outside of China that know that China is extremely important piece of their equation of the business for them, be it for supply chain reasons, for investments reasons, for education's reasons, just, you know, learning about the innovations in China and applying to the business overseas, maybe, etc. There is many use cases why China is very important market for our clients, for, you know, our partners. And so we basically work with them very hands-on and we help them to establish those connections, the network, the team. We hire the team, the, the key people. We, we really kind of you know, uh, I don't want to say control because that's that's a bad word, but, you know, we oversee what's going on because mm-hmm. especially now during COVID, people cannot travel. People cannot really see each other in person. So if you hire a person in China that maybe has never traveled overseas, they will have a trouble navigating the the bridging, understanding the culture, the communications troubles that can arise just from, you know, not understanding each other on the on the deeper level, right? And so we help to monitor this, oversee this, and even coach the people in China and also overseas to overcome these challenges, you know? So, so we are very hands-on, a very operational type of, uh, you know, you can say venture building studio slash boutique consultancy. And uh, we really try to facilitate that, that, that next generation cross-border success and that independence, you know, that people don't have to live in fear every day. Like, like, what is the team in China doing? Are they executing? Are they not? How can we solve the problems? Are they making sure that our brand is positioned well, et cetera, et cetera. There's just so many things that 
are so complex and, and you need to spend a lot of time on educating everyone involved. Otherwise, it will never work out. You know, so so this is what we essentially do. And of course, there is the part that we also help some Chinese companies that want to expand their business into Europe mostly. And uh, we help them to do the same because they have no understanding of the European market either. They don't know how to hire people, how to get excited or how to excite their potential partners for the collaboration and how to kind of mitigate certain risks from, you know, that will just come up because one person doesn't speak such a good English, you know, and they cannot communicate well what they want and what they're working on. And it could just, uh, you know, spark some heated discussion or maybe misunderstandings. And so uh, we really try to mitigate that by uh, by working with all the key stakeholders. I I believe I mean everything what you said. I came to uh, meet it and you know be part of it because in my previous jobs as an you know a product manager, I've had the opportunity to live this um, let's say gap between cultures because I had colleagues from China, I had colleagues from US, then from um, India, from uh, different European countries. And I've seen exactly what you're saying, like the cultural gap that you have to be mindful and really careful about it. And I think that's a really, let's say, safe zone when you are, um, you know, part of a company. But when it comes to exactly what you are saying, you know, localizing a company um, from Europe or from US into China, I believe the gap, the cultural gap is even bigger. And I think it makes total sense to have somebody on the ground and have the key factor and that being trust. Um, to you know, be able to um, successfully and efficiently, you know, manage the operations on the ground and get a, you know, get an office built, a, a, you know, a sales office and operations, whatever it would be the strategic yes. need. So I think I think that's you know that's great, and I think that's a undergoing from your side. I mean, it's not a it's not a very similar you know culture. You know, it's not like um, Czech um, Czech Republic and Slovakia or Czech Republic yes. and I don't know Sweden doesn't matter, right? From Europe, yes, uh, it's yes. like it's quite a different culture. So I think that's a huge undertaking for you to to go through. But you said you said uh, something really interesting around supply chain, and I want to double click on that. How do you see the supply okay. chain right right now? I mean, it's really crazy, but how how do you see it? Yeah, man. I mean, I mean, of course. I mean, there is a lot of problems in the supply chain right now. I mean, I mean, yes, uh, uh, shortage shortages everywhere, right? Like not only in the chip shortages, we hear about it all the time when we when we hear about Tesla, you know, or other 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 companies in in the media, etc. Because I'm sure that people that listen to your podcast, they 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 are also interested in overall stocks and you know just markets. And so, uh, you know, we hear about this all the time. And of course, you know, that's that's a general knowledge that there is a lot of problems. Also, just uh, the shipments, right, the containers and, you know, like due to the COVID, like nobody is unloading the containers. And so everything is stuck and you need to wait for much longer than before. Right. So these things are there. Uh, you know, again, I, I cannot position myself as an expert on supply chain, so cannot uh, cannot really tell when this is going to go away. I don't think it's going to go away very quickly. Because, uh, you know, there is just a lot of fundamental problems that have to be solved. But technology is one of the solutions for sure. You know, and companies like Flexport are doing an amazing job trying to kind of move the needle in, uh, in the right direction. Right. So uh, that's that. But, you know, from my experience and what we touch in terms of the supply chain, even beyond the logistics, etc. You know, I, I definitely have to say that, uh, you know, China is still number one in the high quality 
or high tech supply chain, right? You know, I don't really see people around me that are in the e-commerce business that are selling some products, manufacturing some products. I don't really see them at scale moving to other countries. First mm -hmm. of all, it's very difficult now, even during COVID, you know, other countries are also restricted that much. So they cannot really take on a lot of work. If you say, hey, I moved my factory from China to Vietnam, you know, is it really log logistically, you know, possible? I don't know. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. Maybe yes, but maybe not. And so, you know, really China is is very important piece of the puzzle. If you look at uh, many of the D2C brands, you know, like, like uh, you know, a lot of companies in the States, they're, they're building sexy e-commerce uh, brands, D2C brands, and all of them basically rely on supply chain in China. You know, mm -hmm. like every yeah. single one of them, you know, like they manufacture some high quality products or, you know, whatever it is, they, they, they want to basically disrupt certain industries and offer better prices, better quality. They all still rely on China. You know, like I don't really see people telling me, Hey, we're, we're moving to Indonesia. We're going somewhere else, you know? So, so I think uh, supply chain still matters. Of course, you know, things can change in the long term, you know, nobody knows. Uh, and definitely it has been a long-term trend that some of the manufacturing, especially the, you know, low value at manufacturing has moved out of China even years ago. It's not a new phenomenon, you know, just mm -hmm. now. But, uh, you know, definitely I think that uh, if you're doing something high tech, you know, China matters to mm -hmm. one, uh, you know, to one extent or another. So, uh, you know, you have to pay attention and, uh, you know, you you probably have to have a pulse. You know, you should you should have your ha hand on the pulse here uh, in China. What's going on? I want to debunk some myths because you said, you know, some U.S. brands are building, you know, and not not the only there's I'm, I'm pretty sure thousands of brands are having some kind of manufacturing facilities in China. But I want to debunk some myths. And maybe this is a personal question. Um, because there's a bias, I believe, in like in the in the society that everything that is made in China is cheap and not quality. Do you think that is applicable to all products? Like, how do you see that? Can you actually? The question is, <laughs> can you have high quality products made in China? Of course, man. I mean, I mean, look at iPhone, right? So everybody uses iPhone. Uh, maybe thirteen yeah. other Apple products. And it's all made in China, right? Or maybe, you know, 95% of that is made in China, right? So, uh, uh, you know, it's definitely, you know, yes, it's a myth that you cannot have a high quality product made out of China. I will give you one example. And this is kind of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, name any names because, you know, that could be dangerous for those people involved. But, you know, just an example for you, there are marketplaces out there that basically source from the same factories as the top brands in the world, you know, like all the fashion brands and, you know, all these like Gucci's and Prada's and all the other brands in different categories, the, the most expensive, the most well-known brands in Europe, in the US. And these marketplaces, basically at some point they said, hey, we're sourcing, we're manufacturing your product in the same factory as these brands. And of course, some of these brands, they don't like it. They basically even reached out to the marketplaces and say, hey, you cannot say it because people would finally know that like all of our products are manufactured in China, even though our brand is positioned like, hey, we make everything in Italy or we make everything in yeah. Europe. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so how it works, you know, when you talk to the sourcing and procurement guys, the experts on the ground that worked for the top brands in China, 
you know, the industry and even in the luxury segment, it works the same way that, uh, you know, you manufacture parts of the product in China. The mm -hmm. most important, let's say, you know, you have a handbag. So you manufacture basically entire handbag in China in a factory because high quality, it's cost effective. You ship it to Europe and then you add your logo in Europe in your factory. And basically you can say, hey, this product is made in Europe. Right. This is basically mm -hmm. how the industry works. You know, like if you talk to the experts in this industry. And so there is a lot of misconceptions. You know, people think that all these and of course, I don't want to say all these. Of course, there are brands that are made in Italy and that have factories and handmade shoes in Czech Republic. Of course, there is these like brands and, and these small family businesses in a sense or smaller uh, that uh, that still do it. And it's awesome. You know, I, I always like to support these kinds of brands and companies. But ultimately, when you look at the industry, it works slightly differently. You know, mm -hmm. you still manufacture at scale in China. And then you just stick a logo or some some sort of uh, a slight piece, uh, you know, just to, you know, do the final touch. And you can claim, hey, this is manufactured in, in Europe or this is made in Europe. And so that's the biggest myth or that's something that the customers, consumers don't usually know. Right. Because then it's a matter of branding, how you position your brand and, you know, what kind of marketing you do, etc. I don't think that there is anything wrong with that, honestly. But, uh, you know, what is interesting is that this trend that there is so many new D2C brands right now that are basically taking advantage of this. And they, yes, they go to the same factories because they usually know them, their family, friends, or, you know, their uncle owns this factory that has been doing business with, you know, European brands for three decades. And now, you know, because they see this potential of building D2C brands, they say, hey, I want to do something similar. I'm not going to copy the design anymore. Like that wouldn't work outside of China. Like that mm -hmm. maybe works in China that you uh, do Gucci with uh, three C's and, you know, sell it as Gucci and like people will be, wow, wow, wow. It's amazing. Outside of China, it wouldn't work. Of course, everybody knows that only works in China because people are just not educated, right? In certain mm -hmm. area. But, uh, you know, outside of China, it would never work. But these guys will create similar design, you know, slightly different, not to infringe on the IP. And they will be able to bring the cost of the same product, the same quality to one third or one fifth, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and they built a new brand for the next generation that doesn't want to spend for the Gucci logo, but they just want to have a high quality product. And you see many of these companies emerging. They're either started by US founders or Chinese founders, you know. There is a wave of these companies that is coming and it's not going to stop, man. I'm telling you, there's going to be just more and more of these. That That's super interesting. And, and thanks for like debunking that myth. And I'm pretty sure that there are much more myths that we could debunk around the China manufacturing. Um, and also what I want to say before my next question, which is going to come back to the um, the supply chain and, and manufacturing in itself is, you know, this these fashion apparel brands that you've mentioned, um, they have the top line products which are super luxury and super expensive. We know, I mean, they have some factories in Romania as well because Romania in the past was a uh, was let's say an expert or had really super high quality uh, workforce in 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 apparel. So they still have those factories here. But what we came to find out or you know understand is that these fashion apparels want to have that manufacturer in Romania for the top line, like, you know, uh, top line brands or top line products that are super, you know, quality and super yes. expensive. But at the same time, like you said, 
nobody is going to stop them or you know um you know doing or manufacturing their their products in china as well at the same at the same quality and coming back to the manufacturing do you think the manufacturing will balance it out because of this let's say supply chain um halt and will it come back to europe because i've started to see some trends dynamics of you know yes industry 4.0 automating manufacturing creating um, you know the manufacturing lines in europe and so on do you think that will start happening or yes man i mean i mean again like you know and uh you know just hard to foresee these things right but i think it should i mean i mean there is no reason why it shouldn't right mm -hmm. because uh you know there there's new technologies like 3d printing that is becoming you know so uh well you know adopted across different industries and you know you can actually now manufacture super high quality products locally you don't have to transport them and you know i do believe that you know if we can get to the point that the manufacturing of many different parts especially the heavy parts and stuff you know is done locally then uh, it's better for the environment it's better for everybody else because you know eventually you know like uh you know if if robots are going to take over in the supply chain which is happening right like i mean exactly. it's obvious that there is more and more automation and robotics coming into the space and yes china is leading the world if you look at the data how many robots they deploy in manufacturing every year it's just like staggering you know what is yeah. the number so you know this is happening globally you know like no question about it this trend and now depends on like how the governments will actually you know contribute to this trend right they can invest they can support this industry and uh, they can make sure that you know at least certain uh, strategic parts of the manufacturing process stays locally yep. right yep. and i think you know again my personal view because i'm also a big fan of sustainability and stuff and you know still learning definitely not perfect but you know i would love to see many things that can be done locally be done locally Uh, there mm -hmm. is always going to be certain parts of the manufacturing that, you know, one country will have an advantage compared to others. You know, historically, China had the, the biggest advantage in terms of the quality of the labor and the the, the cost effectiveness of the labor. Right. So, uh, you know, that was the reason why everybody came to China in the first place. So, you know, this this thing may balance out because the cost of labor is rising in China and, uh, you know, there will be certain certain things that will be moved uh, either elsewhere for just the cheap labor or they will come back because now we can deploy you know robotics and 3d printing and we can actually you know cut out the cost so much then we don't need so many people to 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 be part of the manufacturing so i think this is definitely where we are headed i don't know how long it's going to take but uh you know absolutely you know this uh this will happen to some extent and uh you know definitely china knows this right i mean i mean china is not uh or the government in china they're they're not stupid right they see these trends and they know that they have to invest heavily in the manufacturing mm -hmm. to stay relevant you know to make sure that they still can provide value to the global trade or you know the companies all over the world that they can manufacture faster better quality for reasonable prices And that's why they're upgrading their supply chain, you know, and they're even, you know, uh, kind of shutting down some factories that are old fashioned, you know, that just, uh, you know, burn electricity. They're not efficient because, you know, China also is pushing quite, quite actively for the sustainability, you know. So, yeah. so you know, you know, there is a, there is a lot of changes here. And of course, it takes time because this is not going to change over a year. This may take a decade or so to upgrade the entire industry. But 
whoever invests and whoever has the strategy to do that, you know, is going to have an advantage. And then it really, you know, things can move relatively quickly. If it's not for COVID, I think you can relatively quickly move some sort of operations. If you can automate, if you just need a couple robots and if you need a couple, couple people to operate them, you know, you can, like, practically speaking, you can build up the factory relatively quickly, right? You don't need, you don't need uh, that much time. Eventually, Tesla is proving, right? Like, uh, they exactly. have so much, such a sophisticated process and they're able to build factories within a matter of a year, right? Like, within one year, they're able to build up entire factory that is so high-end. So, you know, these things will definitely change and hopefully you have more companies like that. Yeah, I mean, um, since you mentioned Tesla, it pretty much comes to you have the technology, you have the processes and the frameworks, deploy bigger amounts of cash and remove bureaucracy, and give the you know the power to the people to implement, um, start working on that factory, and you can have it in a year, like you say. So yeah, of course. And since we're talking you know about um, or moved a bit to you know the European landscape, I want to focus a bit on the Europe um, um, you know landscape and overall and connected connecting it to your experience, uh, which I want to you know ask you about something, but at the same time just to you know keep the not keep, but bring the focus back on Europe because this is actually a CE kind of yes. focused or, you know, CE and Romania focused uh, podcast. So I want to talk to you about your experience, you know, um, at Food Panda, which, you know, you have been part of the founding team and um, it was a startup that emerged from a, you know, a startup studio um, and you helped the team or the company being part of the company You've helped them, you know, in the operations and the sales part uh, from Czech Republic and Slovakia. How was that for you as an experience, um, you know, within a company that has been built by a startup studio and a company that has emerged from Central Europe into a global scale? Yes, man. First of all, I didn't know that it was started in a in a venture studio. So this is a uh, new information for me. I mean, uh, you know, of course, it's it's backed by Rocket Internet by you know, I guess uh, in nature, Rocket Internet is kind of an accelerator for for companies. You know, so mm -hmm. so maybe that's what you're talking about. But anyways, exactly. you know, uh, I you know this this experience itself was basically extremely transformational for me because you know I I didn't have too many jobs in my career. You know, I had a couple internships. Uh, you know, and uh, Food Panda was actually kind of an internship too because it wasn't a full time job. I was still studying at the same time, but we we're working crazy hours you know, uh, with, uh, with the small team and it really showed me the, the startup, uh, vibe, you know, and the startup, uh, kind of experience. And from that moment, I knew that I really want to work for smaller companies, for startups where you can make a difference from day one, you know, you want to take on responsibility. Everybody will be kissing you for that. They will not be saying, Hey, you cannot do this because everybody is just all over the place and they need any help they can get. So, They will encourage you to take on responsibility, to do stuff that you haven't done before, just to try and learn, you know. And so I have actually done so many things, man. You know, I just wish we had some more videos because, you know, I was even at some point in the journey, you know, I was uh, having a costume of Panda and we're going around universities promoting the company because we just didn't know That's what so to cool. do, man. Like yeah. we didn't have money for marketing. We couldn't spend Facebook ads. And so we're just trying to find out ways how to get some attention to us. 
And so like we're like, you know, dancing in panda costumes and and going to dormitories of students and delivering pizza and, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, nice. we're really we're really playing around. You know, yes, you could say ultimate hustle again. Yes. But, yeah, you know, yeah. at Good the time we're students. Yeah. We're students and, you know, we didn't know better, you know, like uh, we didn't have any money and we just had to make something happen, you know. So basically we did these things and it really showed me that uh, you can do a lot with not that much. And, uh, you know, with the team, basically the entire team that is not there anymore, they moved on other things. Uh, since then, we're still very close friends. Some of them stayed at Food Panda. They moved to different countries and they're basically now, you know, maybe even CMOs of different countries and different regions for the company. So, uh, it has been really, really transformational for me. Very grateful. And uh, yeah, you know, that really taught me the power of startups and the culture. That's super funny. You know, the fact that you said, you know, you were dressed in food, pan in, in panda suits and so on, because it's very similar to the Airbnb story. They started delivering or spreading out, you know, cereals with branding on, with their branding on the cereals. It was a really funny story I've, I've listened to on yes. a podcast. So yeah, that, that, that is super funny um awesome great um well um i'm definitely sure that an experience like that can be transforming like you say and yeah. um also i think i'm coming to you know my my final question which i'm also you know curious about how you how you how you did it what was the process behind um and the, actually the question is you know how do you get to be on the linkedin power profiles list <laughs> <laughs> Man, it's actually, uh, you know, it's related to the very first topic that we discussed, right? The Your China mm -hmm. guy. You know, it. Uh, I think I, it was a matter of timing and, uh, you know, matter of uh, consistency, right? So what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, when I got there, which is in 2018, so it's ages ago, so it's already three and a half years ago, I guess. So basically... When I got that title was that there wasn't too many people in China talking about China and posting about China every day. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was literally every day I would make a post about, you know, what's going on in China in terms of business. You know, what am I experiencing when I'm dealing with Chinese people, when I'm trying to close deals, when I'm trying to negotiate partnerships. I was basically documenting the journey of me, you know, building up Startup Grind and building up these companies in China. And so since there wasn't too many people doing the same thing, you know, I got quite a lot of attention. You know, at some point, you know, my uh, my posts could get hundreds of thousands of views, you know. And so I got a lot of interactions with people through the comments. And uh, because, again, there wasn't too many people doing the same thing. LinkedIn reached out to me afterwards and say, hey, your profile is very active this year. You know, like uh, you uh, just got into the top 10 for the LinkedIn power profile. And uh, nice. I ended up being in the same people, in the same group of people that uh, are basically journalists or that are people that are, you know, super successful investors. And they just get the power profile just because they are who they are and they can post mm -hmm. a couple of times and they always get so many views, you know. So basically, yeah, that was that was that was the way how I got there. You know, I never planned for it. I never really had that kind of idea that I can get there. I was just doing my job and I was documenting the journey and, and people liked it, you know? So, so that's how I got in there. That's awesome. I think for the audience that is listening, uh, you know, listening to us right now, I think the formula could be, if I could, you know, tie it up in, into a formula, it would be find a context, a niche that you can talk about and you're passionate about. Uh, if it's a professional, like it was yours, you know, it was a context that you can talk about 
you're and you, you were passionate, definitely passionate about because I remember the fact that you know you were studying Chinese as when we met. So I know you've said you have classes. So find find a context that you're passionate about. Uh, post every day. Um, you know, be consistent, right? And share a news and insight that you have about that context. And um, what would be the third? I think that's it, man. I mean, uh, definitely yeah. you need to choose the platform that uh, works for you, right? I mean, you exactly. know, not ev not everybody is 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 happy with audio, video. Some people like to write. So, uh, you know, you just have to find the medium that you really like, that you're natural at, you know, because if you're pushing every day to do something that you hate, ultimately you're going to stop at some point. It's just... Uh, it's just a matter of another priority coming your way or being sick or something, right? Exactly. But if you really are natural and you enjoy it and you have some sort of goal, you know, that maybe you want to educate yourself, maybe you want to get to know more people, whatever it is, then if you stuck at it, then then it's definitely going to work out. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of a bad example because I kind of stopped being so active afterwards because I changed the direction of my brand and also, uh, you know, got operationally very busy, but uh, no excuse, you know, like I definitely need to get back, but uh, I'm looking for another medium, you know, like I really enjoy podcasts. I enjoy these video interviews. And so, uh, you know, the next kind of platform that I'm going to be, I'm going to be developing will definitely be around these two platforms because uh, I enjoy the more, the most, more than writing in a sense. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, different platforms and different mediums and different types of content it's definitely much more easier for me as well audio because it's it it puts me in a space of being more authentic and i don't have to think about very much about you know the architecture of what i'm writing what i'm building am i doing it right so that's why i like more audio and um you know i agree with you i think it's you know it it, it has a bigger reach and you can you know just relate to the person behind the audio much authentically more human wise especially in these times of you know being uh, segregated by the pandemic um jan this was amazing and i like the conversation very much and i feel that we've touched only like a brief um points that you you are you are doing uh, definitely we can talk about more because you all i know you you are involved in different accelerators uh different um different funds like uh black panther capital um and i would definitely have you uh, would like to have you again on the podcast and talk about that more. And um, my final question would be, where can people find you if they want to know more about China? Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, you know, the easiest way to reach me is probably LinkedIn at this time. So uh, if you just search, uh, you know, hashtag your China guy or your China guy, you will, you know, I will probably be the first person that will pop up. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate this opportunity. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm from Central and Eastern Europe too, right? I'm from Czech Republic and I'm always very happy to connect with like-minded individuals that maybe want to, you know, come to Asia, come to China, need to solve some problems here around whatever. I'm always happy to uh, offer my, you know, two cents or even uh, help out in a much deeper way if that's appropriate. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, would love to engage with your audience. Feel free to encourage them. To reach out you know i'm always there to to answer the questions reply to the messages and uh we'll be in touch man i i really enjoy this as well thank you so much for the questions and uh keep up the grind man 
Thanks for listening. If you liked this conversation, this is a short reminder to click the follow or subscribe button and get notified immediately when we publish a new episode. Until next time.